This is Tech Talk Today, episode 279. Welcome into Tech Talk today. I'm Chris. And I'm Angela. Hello, Edgers. Hey, look, everybody. It's Angela Fisher. Let's kick things off with some good news. The U.S. Senate yesterday voted to reverse the Federal Communications Commission's repeal of the net neutrality rules, with all members of the Democratic caucus and three Republicans voting in favor of net neutrality. So it did end up being a partisan vote. Now, the Senate approved the Congressional Review Act that we told you about earlier. It was a resolution that would simply undo the FCC's December 2017 vote to deregulate the broadband industry. Now, here's the thing. The CRA still has to be approved by the House and signed by President Trump. It would essentially force Internet service providers to just continue following rules that are in place still, prohibiting blocking, throttling, and paid prioritization. Assuming it doesn't pass through the House or get signed by Donald Trump, then the FCC regulations roll back on June 11th if Congress fails to act. Sounds like there were armies of lobbyists trying to kill this Congressional Review Act. Yeah, Senator Ed uh, Markey said... uh, Don't follow the will of the armies of the lobbyists marching the halls of Congress on behalf of the big Internet service providers. Lobby groups, though, representing all major cable companies, all the telecoms, all the mobile carriers in the states had their biggest they they had like their biggest effort going into urge senators to reject any attempt to restore net neutrality rules. They were all in on the pressure. They've also created a new excuse as to why they shouldn't be regulated. Yeah, how about this? So their their excuse is, well, uh, all of the edge providers, you know, the Twitters, uh, your YouTubes, the, the end content that everybody's getting to, they can apply throttling in their networks. They can throttle at the surface level. So if we're not going to regulate how they can throttle, you shouldn't regulate how we can throttle. But you see, that's the thing is they, the whole thing about the FCC is is they're regulating the Internet as as it's a common carrier status. The back end aspects, the tubes of the Internet is the thing that they're responsible for. And that's the thing they don't want interfered with. They want it to be a transport system, not a slow lane or a, or a fast lane. Now, you can decide how you feel about net neutrality, but this argument is dumb. And it's obviously preying on people that don't have a full technical understanding of the situation. But when has that ever affected Congress? <laughs> Speaking of regulation, U.S. cell carriers are actually selling access to your real-time phone location data to a company you've probably never heard of. Yeah, this started bubbling last week when a senator sent a letter demanding that the Federal Communications Commission, again, the FCC, investigate why Securus, a prison technology company, can track your phone within seconds by using data attained from the country's largest cell giants, including AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, Sprint, and they're doing it through an intermediary company called Location Smart. Mm. Turns out Location Smart is selling your location info to lots of people like Securus and others. And then the story blew up 
when a former police sheriff snooped on the phone location of someone he was after without getting a proper warrant. That made it land in the New York Times, and now this story has blowed up, as they say. It continues to talk about the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which only restricts telecom companies from disclosing data to the government. Right, uh, it not actually, private companies. Yeah, it doesn't restrict <laughs> disclosure to other companies who then can disclose that same data to the government. Right. In this ZDNet piece, they interview Kevin Bankston, a director of the New American Open Technology Institute, and he says this is one of the biggest gaps in U.S. privacy law. And the Hacker News thread about this story is pretty devastating. You go through the comments and folks from industry say, oh, yeah. Yeah, we're one of the many companies that's buying this data all the time. Location Smart, the one that's selling it and many others, is a California-based technology company. And it's a handful of these so-called location data aggregators, which claim to have direct connections. They brag about it in their marketing material. Direct connections to cell carrier networks to obtain your real-time phone location data, etc. from nearby cell towers. Now, it's not necessarily using the GPS in your phone, but it's using the cell tower data, which not only is sneaky because it doesn't require an app on the user's phone, but it doesn't really drain any additional battery life as part of just your phone pinging the cell tower. Verizon, one of the many cell carriers that sells access to this data, uh, uses Location Smart as a, quote, close partner. Location Smart also brags about having 95% of the country thanks to having uh, agreements with all major U.S. carriers, even U.S. Cellular, Virgin, Boost, Metro, PCS, uh, Bell, Rogers, and TELUS are in there as well up in Canada. Location Smart even has a try before you buy page that lets yep. you test the accurate accuracy of the data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can go actually plug your own information in there and uh, you can see where, where it uh, puts you on the map. And they say this is a really useful service. That's why they do it because it helps uh, locate uh, you, when you're near a store that could maybe send you a marketing text message to a rival store. Location data can be used by companies to track deliveries or shipments or by banks to help fight fraud or, you know, all kinds of things like those. There is actual useful things to location, they claim. Apparently, marketing tech's one of them. Uh, But never fear, because you see, the company says they require your explicit consent from any user before their location data is used. They send you a one time text message. (laughs) Or uh, there's some other implied consent methods. Right. Yeah, I was just going to say, they say they get your consent, but then they sneak that in there like, oh, but you know what? Because you're like going to use our service, you just automatically agree. Yeah, depending on the nature of the service, it's just kind of implied. So that's okay. It doesn't, doesn't, no, don't worry about that. Yeah. But the requirement to obtain a person's consent completely collapses if it's a search warrant because the data, they already have it. They have the data. So if a search warrant comes rolling in, then... Uh, it doesn't matter if you give them your consent or not. And then there's companies like Securus, which work with prisons to track where people are calling from that are talking to prison mates. They have standing warrants. So they have consistent, always on access without ever having to get your permission. Now, Verizon and AT&T have been on and off the record in the past using your location data to sell information. Verizon still does. AT&T pulled back on that. T-Mobile isn't responding to comment on some of this stuff. But in a blog post, the EFF said law enforcement may be violating the law by not seeking data directly from the cell phone carriers. Law enforcement should have, or they say, law enforcement shouldn't have unfettered access to this data, whether they get it from Securus or directly from the phone companies. But they've been using this loophole. 
How about one more mobile story before we move on? One plus six specs are out and it's packed and it's still one of the best priced phones on the market. It's going to ship with Android 8.1 Oreo Oxygen OS. It has a 6.28 inch big old screen on it with Gorilla Glass 5, a Snapdragon 845 processor. And depending on what SKU you get, it could have a ton of storage, 256 gigs of storage and up to eight gigabytes of RAM potentially in wow. this thing. Yeah, it's like a full-fledged PC. It's got two cameras. Um, that's the trend, but I don't understand why it has two cameras because they're both the same exact focal length. So it's not like one's a zoomed in and one's a wide. They have the same focal length. It's just one's 20 megapixel and one's 16 megapixel. Maybe they'll give us more information as a front-facing 16 megapixel camera and a 3300 milliamp non-replaceable battery. USB-C charging does not have wireless charging. No IP rating, but is, quote, splash resistant. Has a fingerprint reader on the back. Supports some sort of uh, Android face unlock system. It has a notch, like the iPhone X, and it is all the other goodies. Pricing is going to be, like, say you want the 256 gig uh, model, is going to be 629 U.S. greenbacks. Hmm. Which is, you know, when you consider the iPhone and Samsung flagships are $1,000. Mm-hmm. It's not bad. Gone are the days for me where I worry about how many megapixels my camera is. I just realized while you were saying that, I have no idea what megapixel this phone is, but the phone is all I use. I I looked at my purple camera sitting on my desk yesterday and thinking, I don't use that anymore. You you know what's fascinating? You ought to pick it up and take a few pictures and just see what the differences are. Like, because I I did that recently. I just switched it. You know, I was always taking and I picked up a different camera. I was like, oh, this takes a totally different picture. This is kind of cool. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like it just has to be good enough now. Mm-hmm. And if it's good enough, then it gets reviewed as good enough. The individual megapixels. Uh, yeah. When you're talking 16 and 20 megapixels on a phone camera, <laughs> it just really doesn't even matter anymore. Does it? Yeah. Oxygen OS sounds like it's going to be okay. Or you want to replace it with something else. That's the other thing about these phones. They're really great for alternative ROMs. This might be the one. Check it out. One plus six. We'll have all of the specs in the show notes. Go to techtalk.today slash 279. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Go there to sign up for a seven-day free trial and support this here show and get access to the greatest platform about Linux ever. If the aliens ever came back hundreds of years after civilization collapsed and the Linux Academy servers were online, as they would be because they're well-built, they would realize that this is one of humanity's treasure troves of information about Linux. Self-paced, in-depth video courses on every Linux cloud ops and dev topic you might ever care about. Hands-on, scenario-based labs that give you experience on real servers. And if you get stuck, you need extra help, they have human beings, instructors, full-time, subject expert matter guys that really know this stuff. And probably gals, mm-hmm. I would assume, that can help you. And when you don't need help, they're working on the course material. It's great, and it's it's really one of the competitive edges of Linux Academy. Plus, when you work in their lab systems, they spin up on demand, the practice exams and quizzes that get you ready for the big certifications. And if you really want to go all in on certs, they have courses created specifically to prepare you for those exams. And if you want to do single things, like a, like a scalpel, learn just about the firewall system or the, or the file system or whatever on Linux, they have nuggets, tiny bits of sparkly wisdom about one particular aspect. They'll give you like a challenge and let you put yourself to the test. And they have iOS and Android apps so you can study well on the go and lesson audio, notebooks and study guides that you can download and use offline. All of that you can try for free for seven days 
when you go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Of all the things that you can do with Bitcoin mining, this is the craziest one. This is perfect for you. It, it is because I love having soaks and I love my water to be hot. And you got a big bathtub, bigger yeah. than your water tank. Yes, right, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Well, I'd never thought of this at the time I was mining Bitcoin when I lived at your place, but could have. And we still could maybe. But this guy named Lee used mining cryptocurrency with graphics cards and then later ASICs to heat water in his apartment. You could really you could apply this to a large water tank. And, and he th- he said, well, really what happened was is I came across some coin on an old hard drive and I thought, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invest in this into some ASICs. But then I realized they produced a ton of heat. So then I wanted to do something productive with that heat. So he did this uh, as what he calls a, quote, extremely simple setup. He really he really just took a water to air intercooler like you'd find in a supercharged car and hooked it up to a cooling system and then put it in a bathtub. Ambient air is pulled into the system to cool the ASICs. And then the heated air is pushed through an intercooler that has water constantly being pumped through it from a source like a bathtub. The heat is then transferred to the water. And voila, the computer is cooled while the water is warmed. And you get a nice hot bathtub. And you can see pictures by clicking on the link and the article at techtalk.today forward slash 279. The funniest part of the picture actually is the Amazon box. That he's using to, to uh, I would so do that. Yeah. Hey, you know, you got to reuse stuff. But he says it ended up being a little too effective. Uh, if you left it running all day, it would produce baths up to 122 degrees Fahrenheit or 50 Celsius. Uh, he said it was dangerously hot. I have a few pets who I thought might have fallen in or could have fallen in if they had somehow gained access to the bathroom. So I took the whole experiment down. Hmm. But it's kind of interesting. He said after the ASICs eliminated his $80 heating bill, in addition to generating new cryptocurrency, Lee estimated that the mine's profit went from 10% to 47%. Wow. That's awesome. He says he's going to build another one, but this time not in his bathtub. So if we were to title this episode, it'd probably be Bathing with Bitcoin. (laughs) Bathtub Bitcoin. Also, we should just, as a service, provide the current value of Bitcoin. Current value of Bitcoin is $8,265.03. Not that I'm keeping track, but that is... Did you know I'd have that? Did, can you I, see the... Yeah, I saw the, it before the article <laughs> even came up. Yeah. Yeah. I watch it all the time. That's why I also have a Nest camera that's watching all the time. Except for when it goes down. Yeah, I do. In the in the RV, I have uh, one of the, I have a couple cameras and oh. no, one of them because oh. I tried different ones and the Nest is one of them and it's now owned by Alphabet. But the cool thing about Nest is it recognizes the difference between sounds, human speech, dog barks, motion, and all of that, and has a big wide lens, really wide. And so if there's motion somewhere in the frame, it will send me a zoomed and cropped version of that to my watch. Wow, that's cool. And I can review it on my watch. Huh. Yeah, which is which has led to some interesting discoveries. And uh, it's all worked pretty well until last night. Dun, dun, dun. A few hours overnight, owners of Nest products were unable to access their devices via the Nest app or web browsers. Hashtag first world problems. Yeah. Other devices like Nest Secure, the Nest Locks, they behaved, quote, erratically. Oh, gosh. The locks on the doors. Yeah. Now, we don't know why, but it impacted their thermostats, their locks, their cameras, their doorbells, the smoke detectors, the alarms. Now, the devices remained mostly operational. 
mostly. <laughs> they just were not accessible by any other physical means or by any means other than physical means, like controls. Mm. Like you could push buttons on them and they would respond still, but you couldn't control them any other way. It's not, so it's not catastrophic. Uh, but it basically well, turns your house is on fire. <laughs> it turns your really smart home into basically back to a dumb home that you just paid more for. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's all I have. I don't have anything more. Uh, Nest is uh, it says they'll uh, they'll update people on what the what the uh, issue was. Is Nest a uh, competitor for Ring or yeah. is it uh, mm-hmm. is it? It sounds like it, it offers way more services. Yeah. Well, they've just actually gotten to the where where Ring started with the doorbell stuff and now they're moving into security cameras. Nest started with security cameras and stuff. And now they're moving into doorbells. Oh, okay. So, Interesting. Yeah. Ah. Kick it! it is time for our Kickstarter of the week, and Andrew's found a doozy. Now, I know that we could use this, but I bet everybody could find a use for this if you really thought about it. It's the first handheld sound camera for everyone. It's on Kickstarter with six days left to go. It's got 68 backers. They have a goal of 35,000, and they've gotten 174,000 pledged. Yes. Now, a couple things. First of all, we'd love to hear your feedback on what you would possibly use this for. Obviously, <laughs> it's okay. So it's a sound camera, so you can aim it at something to figure out where the sound is coming from. And as you know, we have this studio here, and we're always trying to eliminate extra sound in the background to make sure that you hear just our voices. So that's what we would use it for. But let us know on Twitter what you would use it for and tag at Jupiter Signal, at Angers, or at Chris LAS. I have a couple of ideas. I, I'll maybe save it uh, for uh, the next episode. So this thing's pretty, pretty neat. Uh, look, think of it as like the underside of not a trash can, maybe like a sewer lid or something. It, it looks... It it says it's handheld, but it's actually quite big for being a handheld. Yeah, it's... It's it's pretty large. It's it's the width of a human body at least. It's a small shield. Yeah, and it's yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it looks like. It looks like it looks like a warrior's shield and it's pretty neat. It's called the sound cam and I want one already. <laughs> this is the sound cam. We use it to make sound visible. The system is simple, lightweight, portable, and robust. There are sixty four microphones here that record acoustical data. The sound cam then evaluates the data. It analyzes how long the different sounds have traveled, then calculates the exact positions of their sources and displays the information visually. It's kind of like GPS. There's a touchscreen on the back that makes the system easy to operate. We can use various different filters, for example, a frequency filter that hones in on whichever specific sound source we are interested in and displays it specifically. Yeah, they have a touchscreen on the back of this thing that shows hotspots on it. So it's a camera, and it, like with augmented reality, essentially, it overlays hotspots like a heat detection camera would. Only in this case, it's visualizing where the sound source is in the image. So if a spot in the image is particularly noisy, it writes up it lights up red hot and fuzzy and it it tracks noisy devices. So if you had uh, if you had something in a room, you could scan a room and this thing would isolate the noise. Now this this required 15 years of them messing around with the fundamental technologies to get here. We started working on these acoustic cameras 15 years ago. At the time, they were just independent systems, each of which was an extremely complex project of its own. Sometimes it took us two hours to set up before we could start recording data. So they go from a bunch of different modules to a all-inclusive system that's all built into the shield. And the real reason they were able to get here is because of mobile phones. 
not that they have a mobile phone in this, but the mobile phone industry just pushed down the cost of these components to a point where they could build everything into one integrated monster. But thanks to the rapid pace of digitalization in recent years, along with the development of high-performance smartphones and other devices, there are now electronic components available that are both low in price and high in quality. As a result, it's now possible to offer the sound cam as a single unit. We do all the hardware development ourselves, in-house. That's extremely important because we bring together a large number of different components. There are the 64 microphones and the camera. Then there's the power management for the rechargeable batteries and the charging circuit. All that had to be combined on a printed circuit board. Then everything is configured using an FPGA. We have extremely high data rates. The 64 microphones alone is like capturing 64 CD players simultaneously. And with those 64 microphones, it's so accurate that it can hear a paperclip dropping on a piece of paper. And it's so neat. Like they show how they could put it under a vehicle and they can find a, a, a rough spot where something's rubbing. Uh, they show you how you could easily diagnose issues with electronics or find the noise source in a building when you're building a, a, a large, uh, like say a, a manufacturing plant. It's really a lot of different possibilities. The only downside is, as you would expect for something like this, especially something new like this, it's expensive. Do you have a guess what the early batch, the first batch might cost? You know, I, I didn't look at what it costs. You have a guess? Um... <laughs> Four hundred and fifty. No, more like five thousand six hundred. Oh my goodness! All right, well, this isn't in your future. I don't. No, think. I don't think we're going to be t- troubleshooting sound noises here yet. Wow. Yeah, but uh, they do have. Um, they have one at forty-seven hundred, and later on, the price. The price also fluctuates depending on uh, all the kind of different stuff, but. Yeah, it's going to be around five grand, I think, once it's a commercial product. But they've been working on this thing for 15 years, and they finally integrated all. They custom-built the chips. They custom-built the UI. It's really neat looking. It's a massive technical accomplishment. It's from a team in Germany. That's why it was dubbed in the background. And it's called the SoundCam. We'll have a link in the show notes if you want to go check out some of the technical stuff. They have a bunch of other videos and audio samples of the UI and all of that on their Kickstarter project. They're going to get there. They're already past their goal, so they're going to get there. And they're going to have a... Re- this is going to sell. Yeah. I could see Hollywood using the hell out yeah, of this. Yeah, I can't wait to see, you know, like those channels where they, they take something and they show it in many different ways, like squishing stuff, you know, with the drill press or, or whatever. Or the slow-mo stuff. Yeah, yeah. This would be, like, I think you would totally yeah. subscribe to that YouTube channel. Yeah, I oh man. I would I would I would even love to be able to rent one for a couple of days and just run it through the studio for like 2 uh-huh. days and then and like here you go. Thanks and just here here's a check for 100 bucks. Yep. It'd be worth it for that. For the last couple of episodes, we've been asking you for your book ideas about Jupiter broadcasting. Behind the scenes kind of things. And now we've got a whole batch. We're not going to answer all of them. We're going to tell you what people want to know. We'll pull out a few, maybe collect a couple of more, answer them with our patrons in the future, but we got a couple of fun ones in, so without further ado, kick it off, Andrews. All right, one from Twitter. Keeping in mind all the feedback you get from YouTube, Reddit, etc., it's interesting to hear what portion of it made you make a change, what portion was the most difficult to digest, and what sort of feedback was loud as heck but completely missed your attention. Another person emailed in saying, how did you manage a presumably co-owned company while getting divorced? And this was actually suggested by an, another person that emailed in. And for Chris, why? What was the spark that got you into radio even before you quit your day job? Everyone's doing it nowadays, but back then that took some vision. And are you, Angela, a full-time Jupiter employee? If not, what's your main gig? 
Someone wrote in with a title suggestion of Penguins and Devils, the unlikely story of building connections the internet was designed to create. Additionally, they want to hear Chris's origin story with Linux. Another theme that can be included is the kid from a small town turns out to have a network that allows him to have global reach and impact the greatest project ever attempted by mankind. Yes, Linux does impact more people than the space program. Ooh, burning questions indeed, Andrews. Burning questions indeed. So we'll answer some of those uh, with a patron video or something in the future. Mm-hmm. Or post, or maybe that should just be a text thing. Maybe not everything needs to be a video. Right. Some people do like to read. Could be a spot we do that. So look for that soon, patreon.com slash Signal. That wasn't a obnoxious plug just for our Patreon signals. Just when we got all those questions, we're like, these are things people really want to know and we need to take our time answering them. Yes. Uh, and <laughs> didn't want to turn this into a 45-minute Q&A episode. Yeah, and there's probably even more that, that yeah. will come out of that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, that's it. We're all done for today's episode and that means we're all done for this week's batch of Tech Talk Todays. We will see you next week. Next week.